are here in the 11FS office, London, for episode 94 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain and cryptography meet the changing worlds of finance, tech, and consumer products. Today we bring you Big French Bank Does a Thing, very interesting thing, Binance Gets Dexy, and Serena Williams Invests in Coinbase. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. Welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by Colin G. Platt today, who's probably by a field, probably shilling Pitch Token Classic. Tell me I'm not wrong. Uh, you know, I did spend all weekend next to a field. My daughter was like hunting for little chocolate Easter eggs, as as is the thing. And now Your daughter was not hunting for PTK, um, given no, you know, no, plenty she, of No, no, she's already fully loaded on PTK. Fully limit, loaded on PTK. Limit long on that stuff. Uh, PTK inheritance structure and tax structurings all figured out? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Good stuff. Alrighty, let's get up with the news. Uh, first story actually comes from uh, societygenerale.com. So Society Generale, it says here, issued the first covered bond of security on the public blockchain. And the public blockchain they used, I believe, was Ethereum. Colin, do you know uh, any more about what this bond actually did? It's very limited on details on their website. Yeah, so uh, it looks like this bond was was issuing what what they call an obligation de financement de l'habitat. So essentially, it's to can, to build houses, um, and so it's backed by the actual physical obligations or of or sorry, the physical debt of the underlying asset. Uh, it's AAA rated by Moody's and uh, Fitch, and uh, is actually a live transaction from what I can tell on the public Ethereum blockchain, which is quite big. Um, and it was a hundred million dollar, uh, hundred million euros notional uh, from Societe Generale. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's that's a big amount of money. Um, I mean, as bond as bond issuances go, it's not massive, um, but as sort of blockchain transactions go, that's really really significant. But I'm guessing this was denominated in real world currency, and they've used the blockchain, uh, in this case Ethereum, to manage the transaction rather than to custody the asset. Yeah, we don't really have the the underlying details, but what was quite cool um, for for all those people working in a bank, this came from a, a project that they did amongst internal entrepreneurs uh, trying to build something. So it actually came from Societe Generale employees, and then they brought in external people to to do it, including PwC and a company called Francophone Africa. Interesting stuff. And they're not the first to do this. Um, BBVA um, several months ago actually issued a 750 million euro 10-year tier two subordinated bond. Um, And apparently they had massive demand with more than 260 orders and it exceeded by more than five times the bond value. Uh, The demand exceeded the supply by more than 5x, uh, making it possible to reduce the mid-swap price by uh, more than 250, uh, 245 basis points. Um, I mean, that's really quite significant. Uh, the issue achieved the lowest spread of a subordinated issue for BBVA since 2007. Um, this looks to me a lot like they took something that was going to be in really high demand and just queued it onto, we're going to do that on this public blockchain um, at, from a transactional standpoint. One, to reduce the cost, but two, you know, it's a major transaction that will have had a lot going around it other than this blockchain piece. Yeah, what I think is really interesting about this in particular, um, I'm not not overly familiar with that BVVA one, but maybe you know the answer. Um, rather than just kind of doing post-trade operations, which is kind of the early inklings of DLT within banks, um, basically trying to track some parts in a blockchain, which I suspect that BVVA one was, this is actually saying we have a token that is the ownership of this bond, which is, is quite significant when you think about the mechanics behind that. 
Yeah, I, I think what was significant about BBVAs is the, not the mechanics, but the size. And it was also, uh, they were issuing debt themselves for BBVA uh, rather than for something in the market, um, which you know they were a little bit more in control of. So they can do something large on their own behalf, um, but to do something that's out in the market and to tokenize it is really, really significant. But what would a, what would a bank do with this? If I'm sitting in a cap markets um, bank somewhere, should I be worried that these tokenized um, bonds are going to be everywhere? And if I can't offer them, my clients are going to move to somebody who can? Yeah, they're going to completely eat everything. Um, I mean, there's a lot of interest, um, but there's a lot of infrastructures we allude to that goes way down. I, it, it was live, but I imagine it was quite limited in what they did here at Societe Generale. Um, if some of what they're trying to do and figure out actually does deliver the advantages that uh, at least have been floated around in, in existence, not by um, SockGen, but by others, uh, I, I would imagine that this may start a trend uh, that pushes people to start looking at it, but we need to figure out lots of things like custody um, and how CSDs might work um, within the realm of CSDR regulation in Europe, uh, as well as comparable things in the US. Just um, bullet point those potential benefits for me. Uh, bullet point, the, what they were going for was better, cheaper, faster, right? Yeah. So they want uh, things to be more automated, and they're looking at systems being able to pass a token back and forth. Uh, hopefully this would bring down your custody cost, at least as far as the safekeeping, if all you need to keep is a password. As we've seen with cryptocurrencies, that may or may not be the truth. Um, we shall see. Uh, but there's lots of other new things that need to come up and lots of questions that need to be answered. I imagine, as I, as I said, I think this was this was quite limited um, and they, they were trying to figure out if some of these things actually deliver it. Um, I don't know that it's actually going to change financing rates or anything like that, but it could hopefully change the operations. The question is, uh, who who gets to retain that benefit? Does it go ultimately back to the funds uh, that end up owning these things, or do they live somewhere on the sell side? Yeah, you, you've got to wonder if if I've changed my cost of uh, manufacture and distribution of an asset, um, should I be expected to pass that on to um, the the sort of the the customer of that asset? It's, it's an interesting question. Um, but somebody else added it as well. Story comes from the Telegraph. The London Stock Exchange have collaborated on their first issue of blockchain token shares. So um, another type of security there moving away from bonds. And apparently around three million pounds worth of shares in technology company 2030 were issued uh, in token form and settled in a test environment using the LSE's Turquoise Equity Trading Service. The share issuance is the first of its kind using blockchain technology that is regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority through its Sandbox 4 program. And of course, the shares were subject to a one-year lockup before they can be traded. They're going to be open to banks, brokers, and specialist trading firms, but not retail investors at first. The token was created again on Ethereum, and the chief executive of 2030 says tokenization will unlock value in a whole range of assets, from existing shares to new issuances. Um, is this more than just PR here? It seems, again, to be one-off transaction, but it's also a real transaction. It was a real test transaction. Yeah. Uh, um, I I think this one has a, a balance of both. Um, I mean, kind of going back to what we were just saying on, on the bond, I, I don't think that this is actually going to change terms of financing. So I would disagree with um, the hypothesis from CEO Tomer Sofizon, Sofonzon, however you pronounce that. Uh, apologies for butchering that. I don't know that it's actually going to to open up a whole new realm of new issuances, bonds, properties, IP, fine arts, and much more. 
by itself. Um, clearly, we can do that with a lot of existing technology, and tokens don't really change that story dramatically. Um, they may help us build systems that are more efficient, and that may eventually open up new markets, but you really need the market forces to, to make that. The thing that is, I think, interesting about this is that we have the London Stock Exchange, which obviously operates an exchange and, and the back end of an exchange, which is a clearinghouse, uh, looking at doing this. So that moving forward is kind of that other piece of the puzzle that we were just talking about on what SockGen might need. Um, so take these two things together. Uh, and I think the big takeaway here is that tokens are something that institutions are actually interested in um, rather than just ERC-20 tokens floating around for ICOs. It does seem to be like momentum is building, but it's still a rumble in the distance. But these are the things we can learn from about where the business benefit might be. Um, but there's also another area where there may be business benefit. Story from the FT.com, JP Morgan are widening the use of their blockchain system, not JPM coin, um, but actually their interbank information network or IIN. Um, the bank is already live and allows banks to resolve compliance issues that can delay payments by weeks. And apparently more than 220 banks are now using the service, uh, allowing data sharing on payments over a network so that errors can be resolved quickly. Um, JP Morgan has now developed a new function that would verify in real time that a payment was going into a valid account, removing the potential of it being rejected days later. Uh, the system will be live by the third quarter uh, for both domestic and international payments. Um, this one interests me because it's really about the information transfer rather than the asset. But actually, it sort of leans to more towards that crypto upgraded narrative uh, rather than the sort of tokenizing narrative. And we saw that with the last story as well, BBVA versus uh, kind of the, the, the SockGen move. Is it kind of using the tech uh, to manage communications better and process better, or is it using the tech to do that, but also change how I'm representing the asset? What I like about this one is um, when you think about international payments, uh, you may have three or four banks uh, in three or four different countries. So when I go to send money to you in your field, Colin, um, we may have three banks in between us, four banks in between us. Um, my sending bank doesn't know why necessarily something has failed until they pick up the phone um, with one of the three banks in the middle that might have a compliance region that's relative only to that country. So let's say you're trying to send money to South Africa. South Africa has currency controls. Maybe somebody somewhere missed a tax form, and that means that the payment got stuck. And until these people pick up the phone and figure out what's actually gone wrong, the payment stays stuck for two to three weeks, which, which means me as a customer, I don't know what's happening because none of the banks by law are allowed to tell me that it got stuck for a compliance reason. So they can't tell me what's wrong. They can't tell me when it's going to get there. They can't tell me if it's going to get there or if I'm going to get my money back, which is a pretty awful experience. So this idea of the interbank information network is a way in which banks can share that information digitally but also do so in a way that is truly um, sort of much more private and much more workflow driven than it would be with just APIs. You see, the problem you had with APIs was I could send you a message and you might send me a message back. Um, but if my system works different to your system, we needed a centralized service in the middle to sort of manage that. And who is gonna who is gonna do it? Well, the Interbank Information Network from JP Morgan sort of operates as that centralized entity, but it's using a piece of crypto um, more along the lines of the cryptography element in terms of some of the zero knowledge proofs that come out of Quorum to be able to help manage how that works. So I can see it solving a real problem. 
Uh, you might argue that Swift could have done this rather than JP Morgan, but JP Morgan being such a major player in the market uh, put themselves in an interesting place as a result. Yeah, and, and I think you said something really interesting, which which is an interesting dichotomy that uh, tacitly we've been discussing. Um, on the whole, there are two two approaches. Uh, the, the first is making a digital form of asset transfer or collateral transfer. And the second is that information exchange. Um, the personally, I, I think that we will we've started to see and we will continue to see more of the first category gain traction um, for the simple reason that the second category, the information exchange, really does need to have large connectivity, large networks, and those take time to build. It's not to say that you know they don't make sense or they do make sense. I just think that's a that's a longer burn. Whereas moving a bond onto a blockchain. You can make that work with very few participants. Um, often, often some of these markets may only have two or three participants that need to be involved. Whereas the information exchange to get any to extract any real value, uh, you need to have massive scales. So I think that um, when we start to see startups in the enterprise space or in the non-enterprise space look to gain transactions, the one that say, "I want to connect data points from these five thousand different uh, places and put them in supply chains." I don't think we're going to see those happen um, before they run out of funding. Um, whereas somebody that says, hey, let's just put this thing into token because you've got a system that accepts tokens, that might work. Maybe. Except IAN is live with 220 banks. Right? JP so Morgan is, does have this, an interesting position, as you pointed out. JP Morgan <laughs> arguably could have done this um, with a centralized service earlier. I think they just happened to be using some elements of cryptography um, that made some of their workflow and some of their network uh, a, a little bit easier to set up. So they made some design choices that they could have made different design choices. Uh, I think what's interesting to this is it solves a real problem. It happens to use some relatively new cryptography rather than relatively old cryptography. Um, but there are many ways to skin a cat, um, which is a weird Weird, weird metaphor. So let's move on to. Uh, <laughs> I, I do want to just say before we part on this, if I were holding XRP and Ripple shares, I would not be overly happy with this. <laughs> well, I mean, two hundred and twenty banks signed up. That's um, that's that's quite a bit. That's about two hundred nineteen more than than Ripple. Ooh, you heard it from the uh, the PTK Schiller himself. Um, all right, n uh, next up we have the good old ad read because this episode is brought to you by R3. R3's Corda is an open source blockchain platform designed specifically for business and Corda is an open source project written in one of the fastest growing languages around Kotlin which runs on the Java virtual machine. This means you can build blockchain apps uh, which they call Corda apps in any JVM language of your choice. In the latest version, Corda 4 features more than 1,800 commits, multiple features that enable you to accelerate your vision of delivering rock-solid DLT applications and go into production with what you need to enable long-term stability and confidence. Uh, visit Corda.net and join the vibrant community. Uh, consume, participate, or contribute today. Um, and if you're a commercial dev, uh, encourage your institution to try Corda Enterprise for free at R3. Com. Shout out to friend of the show, Todd McDonald. Alrighty, um, next story uh, comes from Coindesk.com. Uh, Binance are getting Dexy. They're launching their decentralized exchange ahead of schedule. And of course, Binance is the top cryptocurrency exchange by adjusted volume. Um, and they announced the news on Tuesday saying that the trading will begin at a later date, and users can now create wallets on the Binance Dex. Uh, the CEO CZ said, uh, 
the we believe that decentralized exchanges bring new hope and new possibilities offering a trustless and transparent financial system with no central custody of funds binance dex offers far more control of your own assets so there you go colin you can be your own bank you can be well you can be your own custodian um what was really funny we had a, a live show in london what was it, about a year ago now and when we first heard about this binance dex announcement uh, we, we have that little cool graphic that said, why would you do this? Because you're trying to break the law. Um, and, and we got lots of lots of hate from uh, some friends of the show. Um, so very interesting, I think, that came out of this. Um, Binance doing this will be an interesting experiment. Uh, the really interesting thing I, I watched all weekend and last week was um, projects gradually announcing they're going to move off Ethereum and onto the Binance DEX chain. Um, Binance chain, I guess they're calling it. Um, and they've seen like massive price uplifts because of it, uh, which suggests that uh, hopefully it should bring in more liquidity. I don't know why that would be the case. Um, maybe it'd be cheaper, um, but there is a, a lot of hype around this thing. Um, but that does point out some interesting questions about um, can the same asset that lives in two different blockchains have a governance premium or discount? Um, and does apparently Binance is currently pricing a premium over Ethereum. Is that because of a question around Ethereum? Is that because something's better inside of Binance? I don't know. Interesting. Or is it just hype? Um, you can never. It could just be hype. You can yeah. you can yeah. never tell with this space. Um, although it usually is hype. You can never tell. Well, we can we can look at uh, tethers. Tethers uh, trade across three chains. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, well, I mean, I guess DEXs generally, um, according to DIR.com, um, are actually starting to move into some uh, volume growth. I mean, they they fell from peak trading volumes in May 2018, but a, a number of decentralized exchanges have seen on-chain trading return to growth month on month uh, for 2019. And April set to be the highest month already matching the US dollar value traded in March over $100 million. So, um is Dex making a comeback because of CZ? Is there something fundamentally new here? Are they performing better? What's going on? Uh, I mean, let, let's put it in perspective. That is still an extremely small number. Like 100 million moving per month is like what an average centralized exchange moves per day. Um, so this this number across multiple Dexes is very, very small. Um, I, I think there's kind of a couple of catalysts. The first is... Um, we're starting to see improvements in things like Uniswap come on, which are trying to add liquidity and people are experimenting with these things. We're starting to see more stable coins become available in Ethereum, which is where most of these DEXs live. Um, and, and the cost of doing, doing transactions is lower, the, the transaction cost um, that Ethereum charges to move money around. Um, so I think those have all contributed. But again, these are very, very small numbers in the grand scheme of things. It always comes back to the fundamental tension between uh, cost, performance, um, and, and sort of speed. Like you can have more decentralization, but it will it will cost you more and, and perform worse. Um, but in theory, you can definitely have your own assets and it's more decentralized versus it's more centralized, it's way more efficient. And no matter what we do, we don't seem to be able to break the laws of the universe on this one. Um, it's uh, and, and actually, that goes to the next story, which came from the block crypto.com. Um, Skeptics Lens, can Binance revive decentralized exchanges? And they make some of the points you made there about there's uh, there's a tiny amount of volume there. Uh, the total 100 million was actually, uh, in one month, was the same as Binance over a two-hour period um, through the month of April. So it's, you know, it is 
is, is incredibly small, and it's 0.3% of the legitimate traded volume on centralized exchanges, it's still very, very small. Um, and again, it makes the points about them being slow and impractical. Is that likely to change? Is there anything coming around the corner that could change it? Is there a, a major advantage to uh, decentralized exchanges that, that we're just not seeing? I mean, I, the the catalyst I, I would put in there to see further growth um, or actually kind of major growth inside of DEXs would be when some of these decentralized finance things start to couple up. And you, uh, one of the advantages of using a decentralized exchange in some forms of them, is that you once you actually receive money, you can use it into something else. So if you've lent money out um, and then want to receive the other side, you can actually use that across a variety of applications because it's all kind of within the same Ethereum ecosystem. Um, that's not always the case, but that's sometimes the case. So having something where I can go and uh, trade my Ether for um, USDC and then lend that out in something like uh, Compound Finance or Dharma Protocol to earn uh, interest on that, might be something that would entice people to pay that transaction fee or accept that it's slower um, than going to Binance or Bitfinex or uh, Binance, where I might not have those options, or I might be limited. It's interesting how experimental all of this stuff still is. There's a lot to learn here, um, but it's pro it, it's definitely not ready for the prime time. But actually, that learning is still valid um, because you know you look at some of the the other businesses in this space that were probably in that position four, five years ago, six years ago, and you, and you get towards you know, what you see in the next story, story from Coindesk.com, um, Coinbase generated more than $520 million in revenue last year. And a couple of other stats that I found interesting, the crypto exchanges UK revenue grew by 20% year on year to $173 million, and a net profit of $7.4 million in the UK alone. So um, there is money to be made out there in crypto still. Um, net profit is interesting. Um, for, a, for a sort of VC-backed company that's five, six years old, you would expect it to be getting towards profitability. But the context of the market here is you see challenger banks, you see you know, Uber and Lyft and others, um, and even sort of larger uh, other organizations, your, your WeWorks of the world, continuing to grow without hitting profit. So there is mega growth still available and, and funding available for enterprises that aren't quite finished yet. And yet Coinbase seems to be in a bit of a different space. So are, are they just trying to extract value from this space because they're finished? Or do you think there's more to, to come from them in the future? And, and what role might they play in the world of more traditional financial services? Well, they seem particularly in the end of 2018 and, and in 2019 so far to have kind of like taken a couple of different pivots. We talked about um, them going to debit cards. They've been investing in lots of other projects. I think that they they probably still have lots of 2017 money that started to be invested into new ideas that are just being announced now. Um, but I think that the point about the UK growth being so big, um, I mean, I'm very surprised that the revenue for the UK is that big compared to the US um, being their largest market, but they also are in a few other places. I know they're trying to grow in in Asia. Uh, I met their, their future head of, of Coindesk Japan, um, assuming they get their licenses put in. And they definitely have some really interesting uh, plans out that direction. And I, I suspect that they will keep going. I also know from what I've been hearing from other people that they're very worried about uh, Binance potentially getting uh, okayed to, to work in the US. Um, lots of people seem to love exchanges. Um, what I'm very surprised about is uh, how tribal people are about exchanges, Coinbase and Binance being two particular cases.
Yeah, indeed. Um, everybody has their favorite, but these guys are, are making money, seem to have the requisite regulations in most countries. Um, but, uh, you know, do they move more institutional? Do they continue to serve the retail base? And how much of this money is really coming out of the retail base versus how much of it is coming out of the kind of people using the institutional side? I think it's virtually all uh, retail. I mean, there's some institution, but that, that came in quite late with their custodial offer. Um, they've got Coinbase Pro, so that's hard to break down. Um, but I, I would suspect that a lot of it is still what we would class as retail, even if they call it a professional offering. Interesting stuff. Well, as a side story, of course, uh, Coindesk.com covered Serena Williams investing in Coinbase. So I thought we'd seen the end of um, you know, celebrities getting involved in the crypto stuff. But this is a slightly different story, I guess, because uh, this strikes me as when Snoop Dogg invested in Klarna or Jizzy invested in, uh, I think it was Robinhood, you see like sort of just big tech investments probably means that somebody's uh, family office or wealth manager is guiding investments towards something that looks like it might grow um, more than more than anything else. But hey, it's a household name nonetheless. It is, it is. And I believe that her husband uh, is is a VC in the US as well, Alexis Ohanian. He found, was a founder of Reddit. I would expect there may be some link there. That's a fun fact. Um, I, there's something you can take up. Um, stories we didn't have time to cover in case you missed it. Um, Coindesk.com covers Bitcoin's price climbing above $5,500 to reach a five-month high. Um, could be off to the races again, Colin. Gary Fagan's going to be so happy when we put in weekly price updates for him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ariang News, um, Korea's average cryptocurrency buyer has invested more than $6,000. And from the next web.com, Volkswagen are betting on blockchain to electrify its battery supply tracking. More tracking and tracing there, as you were saying early, Colin. Um, you still have some depths about that use case. Um, it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from uh, Maya Zahavi, and uh, Maya says, uh, interesting. Valuation based on the revenue in a bubble market, mega-sized staff brought in, and a few rather important crypto products. Uh, of course, she's referring to a link that she posted where Consensus looks to raise $200 million, uh, but generated $21 million of revenue in 2018. That's a big old raise on a, on a, uh, a revenue amount there. Uh, well, yeah, as we said with Coinbase, um, smaller revenues, uh, earlier company, um, and and they, they want a big number. I think they were looking for a valuation north of a billion dollars, which I guess if you're raising $200 million, uh, you're not looking for a $201 million valuation. Um, it, it is interesting that a majority of their revenues uh, came from their consulting arm. Um, that That's generally not a multiple one would expect with a consulting branch uh, on valuation. But uh, good luck to them. Uh, I know they've been going through lots of changes, as, as is always the case when markets change. Um, so wishing them the best. Yeah, it's not unreasonable to expect um, investors to move in uh, on, on a story and track record and a thesis more so than a really clear path to profitability at an early stage. So any other thoughts, generally on Consensus's broader offering? I know they're, they're sort of um, a sprawling organization with, with lots of people, lots of talent, lots of things they're offering, um, potential billion-dollar valuation. Um, how do you see this one uh, moving forward? Uh, is it just that they're subject to the bear market and the, the price of ETH is hurting them? Or do you think this is a real opportunity for them to, to 
transition away from just being, you know, making money off ETH and the runway there? I well, okay. I think that there's there's two things in that last part. So um, I I think they will still be highly focused on the Ethereum ecosystem, which is um, they are lots of people that are founders in there are very close to that. Um, I I would hope that uh, they can start to get some traction with outside of their their consulting. I know they're trying to change the consulting they're doing from smaller POC work into larger projects, um, potentially bringing things live, which is very good uh, if they can pull those things off. And I think that's kind of the holy grail for what everybody's looking at in this space. Um, the other thing is they've, they've done a lot of work to come out with products. Um, what I would love to see um, is more decentralization across the Ethereum ecos- ecosystem. They did get criticized quite heavily in, in 2017, 2018 for essentially throwing their weight around. And if somebody came up with a good idea, they either offered them a valuation to come in and do it in-house or, or flattened them. Um, and we saw this with some very large uh, projects as well with ICO money was being thrown around. Um, I think they have to get pickier and choosier about what they're going to do, which is a good thing. Um, and hopefully people that are looking to come to the space and have an idea will have more options they can go to rather than just consensus. Um, but if they do get $200 million to go and grow, um, that, that's quite bullish, I think. It's interesting, the, the question of who do they want to be when they grow up is something faced by a lot of startups, and it's faced by basically anybody building a, a product and proposition. And actually, the answer to that is not always clear, um, but you've got to have a, a kind of a thesis. Uh, I think the challenge with consensus is that there's so many answers to that question, who are you and, and what customer do you serve and what problem do you solve? It's basically like everything. Um, and and having a really clear set of answers to that, or being able to subdivide that up a little bit, is going to be is going to be really crucial. Um, and and I guess having that clarity of focus and landing one like killer product that's that's tearing away in the market, and then using that to double down on and and kind of build an ecosystem around. Uh, it feels like they've launched uh, fifty ships into the fog rather than sort of uh, one that's really sort of path found for them. But then you never know; one of those fifty might path find, and that could be the one that they then double down on so it could yet work out for them yeah I mean, if you're going to be the spray and pray company then then at least just call yourself that um rather than trying to say we're going to build an ecosystem all righty uh just to remind listeners this podcast is brought to you by 11fs and we're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services we create truly digital propositions uh we work with banks big techs and all kinds of companies who want to get the most out of where finance meets customers and if you want to know more about how where finance meets customers uh we've done a free report at bit.ly forward slash jtbd pfm jobs to be done is a form of bottom-up customer strategy that identifies the most underserved and overcharged customers in the market? And also, what does a proposition need to do in order to win that customer base? It allows you to rank and prioritize features, but also it gives your designers something to work around. We think it's a little bit special and we think you'll think it's special too. So that's bit.ly forward slash JTBD PFM. Check it out and let us know your thoughts. If you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, please subscribe. Subscribe button's right there. And if you're already subscribed, why don't you throw us a review? Um, Review the fact that, you know, give it five stars because Colin G. Platt is the richest man on earth. And you never know, you might get yourself a little bit of PTK for it. Do you have a PTK tip bot yet, Colin? I'm actually trying to get somebody to build one. PTK pip bot. All right. um, How can people get hold of you, Colin? On on the Twitter, uh, doing the tweeting, at Colin G. Platt. 
at Colin G. Platt. I'm at SYTaylor or Simon11FS.com. A big thank you to the production team here as always, uh, producer Petrit and Alex, our editor. Thank you very much for listening. We'll have more Butcher Insider next week. Goodbye for now.